0: Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. In this 2011 interview, recorded at our Mass Device Big 100 Roundtable West, we sat down with Mike Masalam, the CEO of Edwards Life Sciences, to talk about how his company is revolutionizing heart surgery. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope you download more. So, Mike, thank you so much for being here. We were talking a little bit in the back room about basketball and sports, and I think one of the things that I'm most concerned about is since the Lakers traded Lamar Odom, what's that going to do to a venerable institution of Southern California in the
1: Kardashians? <laughs> exactly. So thank, thanks for that question, Brian. <laughs> I was telling because I was born and raised in the Midwest, actually Gary, Indiana, near Chicago. All my sports allegiances are back there. So, unlike some of the crowd here, I'm not. I'm not a Laker guy. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot in common already, Brian.
0: So, Mike, I read on Friday Edwards put out a release, and he said that 2012 is going to be a transformational year, I'm assuming that when you talk about that, you're talking about the sapiens insurance catheter heart valve and the impact that's going to have on, on your business going forward, and especially after the recent approval in the United States. But maybe you can explain this in your own words, because transformational, it's a pretty... Interesting word, and I just want to get from your perspective what you think that
1: means the transcatheter technology is a Transformational technology if you will it really changes the way that medicines practiced, And the bar is just higher in the United States than anywhere else and to be able to bring this technology to the US And to do that effectively is a big deal and it changes our company dramatically it changes our company from a size perspective um, our, you know, we've done a pretty good job of delivering, executing at a reasonably high level. Th- this will now be tested at a, at a different level than it's ever been tested at before, and we have the privilege of sort of introducing this alone. And so without a competitor, we will have the, the privilege, really, to train U.S. physicians to be able to do this technology. So this uh, we, we built an organization just to do that. It's, a, it's an enviable position. And if we can perform that at a high level, I think it, it changes our company dramatically.
0: This was years in the making. So tell me how many years this took yeah. and, and maybe how many years off of your life it took from start to finish. Can you, can you tell me how long it took?
1: Well, it's a, yeah, I think for, from a distance some folks see this as an overnight success, but we, we've been at this a long time. This is more than 10 years in the making. So, you know, the idea actually was born way back in, in 1990, but we at, it would have been still Baxter at the time, sort of the 99 time frame started our own R&D project in this area and at the same time there was a small company called PVT that was doing their work and that that's really when the work really started proceeding in earnest was back in that time frame. And then the, the first human case was done in 2002 and the acquisition of PVT by Edwards Hap was announced in December of 03 and culminated in January of 04. So it gives you a sense of how long we've been at this and the idea has always been fascinating from the very beginning almost unthinkable if you were already in the the business but certainly aspirational
0: so and and of course there was a long process in getting this through the fda because I mean, presumably the gold standard right is having it you haven't succeeded until it's on the market in the u.s in some respects so take me through the emotions you had when you found out in november i mean because you had a positive panel vote in July. And then there was kind of that arduous waiting period there. But take, take me a little bit through the emotions that you felt in November when you finally got the word. Did you cheer? You know, were there high oh, yeah. fives all around? Oh, or? yeah.
1: You no, know, it, was, it, was it was an extremely exciting time. It's funny when you're going along this journey, there are, there are milestones along the way. And when you hit those milestones, they couldn't be higher. And then there's also some low points along the way where things just don't look good. It looks like there's not, you know, the sun's not going to come up tomorrow. And so you, you ride through a lot of those emotions along the way. And when you get to the actual point of approval, to, to some extent there's been so many of those highs and lows along the way, I suppose there's a certain amount of emotion that finally... This has happened. You know, interestingly enough, um, you know, we were thinking that we were going to be the ones to tell the world, but FDA decided to announce it to the world at the same time that they told us. So they actually scooped us. We had some people. Did you know it got approved? Really? (laughs) (laughs) They were kind of proud of it too, apparently. So. Um.
0: They they took a lot of their lives, too, I would guess. I'm just imagining, like, you know, screaming high fives, people throwing stuff up in the air. You know, was there there there, a party, or was it...
1: Yeah, no, it was. uh, I walked back to the area where a lot of the design work had taken place, our transcatheter heart valve group, and had a chance to talk with some of our leaders that had been through this whole journey. And we reminisced about, you know, the years before and all the, uh, all the, the journey, if you will, along the way and that was probably the most satisfying or just going through and reminiscing with all those that lived the, the highs and lows along the way and lived all the twists and turns when we were sure it was going to happen sooner and then we wondered whether it would happen at all and that's the most rewarding part is the the struggle is, is all part of what makes that the arrival so special
0: so maybe we could go back to maybe I guess one of those low moments uh, it, and that would be back in 2005 when you you had to stop the pivotal trial there, and you know that must have been a that's sort of a Fisher cut bait moment. I I would presume, maybe you could take me through how you you work through that that calculus. I mean I would assume that was a moment where it was like, are we really going to keep doing this or is this worth the effort?
1: Yeah, so just to provide the audience with a little bit of perspective, the first case done like this was done in 2002, and Alan. Cribier, who was a spectacular cardiologist in Paris, that really had the bulk of the early experience. And his experience was with the sickest of the sick patients, really, that didn't have a prospect to live much more than a matter of weeks or months. And he had quite a successful experience with this. And we did our engineering on it and made some improvements. We were fortunate enough to have that whole team from PVT come with us and hold our hand and, and help us along the way. And when we got to 2005, we finally convinced the FDA that we, we need to bring this to the United States, and they didn't give us a pivotal trial. They said, you can do a feasibility trial. So you can go to three hospitals, and you can do a handful of cases, I Man, I think it was less than 50 cases at the time. And we started down that path, and it didn't go well. I think there was maybe five cases done at Beaumont Hospital, the first hospital we went to, and... Out of those, I think maybe three were really successful. And New York started up without success as well. And we knew at that time that we needed to stop. It looked like at that time it just was apparent that whatever the success was that was happening in France was just not transferring over to the United States. And so we just said... This is not it. And our clinicians went from being so high because they were so excited about doing this new procedure and not to be able to give these patients a successful outcome was, was a, a huge downer for them as well. So it wasn't a wonderful time back then. Just just to build on it, though, at the same time, our, we have such a, we have such bright engineers and working with great partners. They were working with a cardiologist in Vancouver by the name of John Webb, and they had simultaneously developed a different way of delivering this heart valve, so-called retrograde as opposed to antigrade. So instead of coming up the venous side and, and putting a hole in the septum and doing a loop through the mitral valve in a pretty complex procedure, which Professor Cribier was doing, he decided that he could get this device, which is a pretty large device through the femoral artery, and then up the aorta and deliver it the way it's being delivered today. He had success doing a number of these cases. And so what we decided to do was to try to see if we couldn't come back into the US with a new feasibility study and come with a different approach, and that's what we ended up doing.
0: I mean, but was it a Fisher Cut Bay moment or was it just, we gotta keep going here, we, we can't stop now?
1: Oh, you know, we had, so, we had such high expectations, such high hopes. We, we saw what this did for patients, and we just couldn't accept that this would be the end. It was depressing, and I'm sure we had our dark moments, but I don't know that any of us that were really deeply involved ever said, no, this is, this is it, we're stopping. I, I think we were determined that we were going to find a way.
0: So that was one of the moments you probably were sitting back there with the guys in November talking
1: about? Them. Exactly.
0: Uh, I mean, you know, are there any sort of enduring lessons of um, leadership or or innovation that you can take away from that whole process that that, that you're going to use going
1: forward? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's not so simple. Uh, You have to be there. I I don't think there's one thing where you can say, oh, just persevere or just recognize when you have a problem and stop. I mean, part of it is we we really owned our results, okay, And, and that was painful for us to fail. Um, very painful, but you, you knew if you weren't having success with these procedures it, it literally could cost these patients their lives. These were their, your heart valves that were being operated on. We kept this compass of the most important thing we could do is deliver for these patients. And that stayed that stayed number one for us and it guided us through this entire process. That was always our true north, if you will, because we, we knew if we could deliver this procedure for patients that we could literally save lives of people that had no hope, that were were just too ill or too old to go through open heart surgery. We use that as our compass. There is a huge element of persistence, right? There's a huge element of just being innovative, thinking about another way, always having an alternative, never allowing yourself to be trapped with it where you're, the only answer was no. And I think creative people do that. And we're fortunate to be surrounded by creative people. We've had bright people that are involved in this and we're always thinking about better answers along the way. And when you listen, it's impressive what you learn.
0: Do you feel like uh, as the leader of the company, you have to be driving the bus on keeping that spirit up and, and keeping the, the spirit of persistence up.
1: I would say we operate more like a team. What happens is when you're in my job, you you probably get a certain amount of credit when, when things are really good or probably when things are really bad to a certain extent. But we're sort of all in this together. We talk about things as a group. We talk about it openly and we share. And so we end up with sort of a, a shared sense of ownership of, okay, we're all... We're all going to have this victory together or we're all going to share this moment that's not so good. And that's the way we've operated pretty consistently along the way. I guess it's the leader's job to some extent to make sure that you draw people out and you get their real feelings and that we have a good, robust debate and that it's safe to bring up all the parts that's not so fun to talk about. We work hard to have a safe environment for people to speak up. But I think we've over time we've we've gotten pretty good. For example, our executive team, we're we're pretty open with each other. People don't hold back. You should see it sometimes. But it's what it's really it's what makes us stronger and it's what makes our decisions a little bit better. We have a climate where it's tough for people to sort of BS each other. Right? If somebody's out there just sort of talking about things that aren't really backed up with, with the facts, there's a good chance that they're going to get challenged pretty aggressively by the peer group around us. And a leader really benefits from that kind of climate. Does that include
0: you, too? I mean, if you bring some weak stuff, is somebody going to come in there? Oh, yeah. and
1: swat it right back? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Does anybody uh, from Edwards want to
0: verify if that's... Uh...
1: Yeah, there's a few people in the audience that probably have earned that badge of honor. But then again, you know, I, I also come from a, a family where, you know, it was pretty common to just argue at the dinner table. I mean, and sort of, the more that you believed in your point, the louder you talked. If you screamed loud enough, then you might just win the argument. We had to discover each other in the process, because when the boss starts raising his voice, the people have to figure out that he really is harmless. But, you know, but we we learned that. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, you're from Gary, Indiana. There's another famous Michael from there, but
1: there is another famous Michael, and this one can 't sing. I can tell you that tell, no, was, uh, tell
0: us about your family a little bit. It's a big family, small family yeah
1: no, I one of three boys. My heritage is Lebanese, I was you know blessed with just absolutely loving parents, and you know we had this attitude like a lot of people's parents probably here, that just wanted to give their kids a better life that's what they did. They just worked hard, they didn't have a lot but they made sure that we had everything we needed, including, you know, tons of Lebanese food and all that stuff that was really important. My older brother actually has Down syndrome. He was really important to me. So I ended up behaving a little bit like the older brother. And it gave me a great appreciation. So here was a guy in my eyes who probably attained so much more than I attained in my life, just, just making the most of what he had going for. He actually learned to read and write and so forth. Just, just incredible for somebody with those kind of disabilities, you learn you learn lessons from that. I probably developed certain attitudes along the way. You know, I ended up really not liking bullies and really also giving people a chance who were trying hard. And, and those kind of things just sort of stay with you. But I was lucky enough to be able to get into an engineering school, get some financial help, fortunately find my way into medical technology way back in 79.
0: So did your parents immigrate from from Lebanon? Or? No, my
1: grandparents came from Lebanon, yeah. What what'd your dad do? My dad uh, did a lot of different things during his life. Uh, during the last part where, when I was at home, he was the sole proprietor of General Exterminating Service, so he was one of the biggest exterminators in all of Gary, Indiana. <laughs> yeah, a matter of fact, he had a little slogan that went on his, he used to have yellow page ads, right? He's, he had a little guy with a gun saying, murder is our business, and so... <laughs> And our and our and our home phone also doubled as the business phone. So every once in a while we'd get these calls and somebody would be calling from downtown saying, I've got a problem with my husband. But... Murder is your,
0: that, that probably that murder is our business wasn't in any
1: of the Edwards. No. Slogans wasn't it? <laughs> No, our, our our public relations people are scrambling right now, right? Now. <laughs>
0: And your mom? My
1: my mom was a remarkable lady. She actually, she was an office manager at Metropolitan Life Insurance even during the Depression. And so this is when most people were out of work and her brothers that had pretty good education and so forth were all out of work and she was probably supporting a family of I think six kids with her job. So pretty remarkable. She had arts and so forth in her background like theater and that sort of thing. So very different from my dad.
0: So do you feel like the lessons that you took from a childhood was really, you know, you had that spirit of work, work hard. Because I mean, I, I know the feeling. My grandfather's from Italy, so you know, yes. always... The... No, no, I,
1: I think there, there's probably more than anything else that was about hard work. I mean, you, you just, you just, you just did that. I mean, I was a paper boy when I was whatever he was, you know, nine years old delivering Gary Post Tribune. I to think. That was one of the things that was a great life lesson delivered 72 papers you had to do it every day at the right time people were very particular if the paper got wet or if it blew away you failed and so you need to get each one of those right and then visit every one of those 72 people and collect 35 cents from them every 2 weeks which is also very interesting and you just you learned something about being a business guy and you know did I just had a lot of a lot of jobs after that but all those always entrepreneurial though i mean or was it just Oh yeah you know i wanted to be competitive as always. I made it to a four-star paperboy. I was proud of that. Right.
0: (laughs) So we were talking to Jim Mazo recently, and he he said being a CEO is really the the loneliest job. And we were talking that uh, he he told me uh, that he really relies on mentors and personal coaches and things like that. And we were tailing off of the Atul Gawande piece in the New Yorker recently about the value of coaches. I'm just wondering... He also mentioned that you two frequently talk as well. Tell us a little bit about your peer circle. Who do, who do you go to for advice? Do you have a coach? Do you see value in that?
1: Yeah, well, Jim's a terrific guy. I'm surprised that he needs any coaching. He's, he's very good. I'm maybe a little different. I don't end up feeling, I'm not a lonely kind of guy. I'm surrounded by people. I probably get most of the advice that I get from people inside the company. So I'm surrounded by people that know more about their area than I do. And so when it comes to trying to make financial decisions, I'm turning to Tom, our CFO. When it comes to trying to think about science, I'm turning to Stan Rowe, our Chief Scientific Officer, and others. And it goes on and on. And that's probably where most of the advice comes from. You know, those things that are very big picture, I would lean on our board. We've got a fantastic board that I would lean on. But I don't. Uh, the other place I guess I feel like I get help is just being out in industry. You know, I, I've engaged in industry, so I get to be around my peers, guys like you're gonna hear from later, uh, Scott and Joe. And you know, when you're around people that are also running businesses and you have a chance to interact with them, you, you feel like you learn a lot. You know what you don't know and you gain confidence in the things that you do know. And so I end up feeling like I get lots of pieces from other places. My wife, Linda, also helps me out with a lot of advice, which is all, always helpful. right?
0: And your role in AdvoMed, you were infinitely involved in, in the health care reform negotiations in mm-hmm. you know, 2009. And now in 2011, and health care reform has this, like it or not, stigma here that it maybe didn't go all the way, it didn't go far enough, very low public opinion. Do you have any regrets about the deal the industry
1: made? Uh, oh, you know, I think it's hard to go back without sort of understanding the context. You have to remember what happened. Our our president came in. He came in with a mandate, extraordinarily popular, totally democratic House, totally democratic Senate with bold ideas and, and wanted to reform health care and he had a he had a bold vision of reforming health care and on the list was it's not right that there's these, call it 45, 50 million Americans that don't have insurance. The cost is too high and the quality is too low. And so all those things were on the list. Well, one of the things that I guess I learned along the way is just how complex it was. I mean, I, I, I grew up in medical technology for forever. right? I've been at this for 30 years. And somehow I had this vision that we were the center of the universe. And when you get into the healthcare debate, you find out that we're small. We're, I don't know, what are we, one-twentieth of the total picture? So there's a lot of big moving forces that are going on out there. So in the final analysis, the feeling was that the medical device industry was going to benefit from these, all these extra patients that were going to get care, these 45, 50 million patients, even though we didn't agree with that notion. And so somehow they should contribute they should contribute to the cause. And so we ended up with a medical device tax, which I don't think anybody in our industry certainly feels good about.
0: Absolutely. It's obviously a big concern for the industry. But it's also one of the list of these things that I guess are hanging over the industry. You know, you told us at the start of the year that you were really optimistic about the future of the medical device industry. Now, 12 months later, the device tax is looking that much bigger because it's that much closer and you're seeing some companies laying people off in advance of it. And... You know the economy is still a little rocky uh, do you still Do you still believe in that optimism for the future of the industry
1: i, I do i 've been around long enough that i that I feel like i 've seen a, a few cycles here. you know remember it was like i don 't know do, many of you do remember what it was like in the 90s in the medical technology space man you could do no wrong. you could be sort of okay and still be successful. Just, just everything was a winner. And we're probably going through one of the toughest periods we've ever gone through right now. I mean, in terms of the prospects for the industry just not feeling good. I'm not too hung up on that. I, I don't think it's that bad. I believe so much in what we do. The, the idea that we as an industry can marry technology with these unmet patient needs and really solve problems, that is not going away. I mean, patients... Although they're so much better served today than they were 10 years or 50 years ago, we can serve them so much better. So our industry is going to add a lot of value. And even though right now things are tight and there's not big prospects here in the next six months or one year, I'm convinced that the prospects of the future are extraordinarily bright. We'll, we'll drop off. The, the weaker ones probably won't persist. There are those people that aren't really committed to delivering for patients, may not persist, but there's a lot of people like the guys you'll hear from later tonight that are in it it swinging, and there's going to be a very bright future for those companies.
0: I I don't want to go all James Lipton here and be like, you're at the pearly gates. But I I have three for the last question, just a couple fill-in-the-blanks. So five years from now, Edwards Life Sciences will be.
1: We're going to be innovating and really addressing unmet patient needs that today we can't even can see we're going to be solving problems that today we consider unsolvable.
0: Five years from now, Mike Masson will be.
1: Five years older. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm going to be in there swinging. I, I'm not the kind of guy to slow down. I'm going to be out there looking for innovations, spending time with our customers, spending time with our investors, spending time with our employees. I'm going to be out swinging away. And five years
0: from so now, the medical device industry will be
1: medical device industry is going to be solving problems for patients. There's, there's no doubt in my mind.
0: Well, thanks so much. Right. Mike. This is really <laughs> terrific. No, no questions. questions.
1: Thank you,